episode number are we up to? Oh yeah, it's episode 468 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I'd like to welcome you to this week's show by playing a little music. As always, we like to play music here on the show, and this time around we are playing the song Outer Space. It is from the surf band based out of Cologne, Germany. It is Beware of Blast, and they just put out this EP earlier this month. Three songs, Outer Space, is the name of the EP release, as is the name of this song, and I dig it. And I think it's apropos considering the movie that we're talking about this week. It's a science fiction film. So, you know, outer space, sci-fi kind of makes sense. The movie is The War of the Planets from 1966, directed by Antonio Margariti. Or if you watch the movie, the credits actually say Anthony M. Dawson. But it's Antonio Margariti. And we're going to hear about this film and about Antonio Margariti and a few other things along the way with my friend, Rod Barnett. Rod Barnett is the man behind the Nasha cast, the Bloody Pit of Rod, and he is the president of a particular fan club. You're going to hear about that in the conversation that I'm going to have with him here shortly about the War of the Planets. It's been way too long since I've had Rod on the show. I was really happy to catch up with him, and I think the conversation went pretty well. Also this week, we bring an end to the 2020 Monster Movie Madness Tournament. It is over. We are going to announce who won. The final two entries went at it over the past week, and I was joined by Steve Turek from the Diecast Movie Reviews podcast to announce the winner. And reflect a little bit on how the tournament went, and maybe even give you a sneak preview of what's going to happen in the 2021 Monster Movie Madness Tournament. Also, we have a little bit of feedback, and of course, we've got Kenny's look at famous monsters of filmland. That's all going to happen right after this. How often has this happened to you? You're on your way home after a long day when suddenly tragedy strikes. No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. Professor, there's a big lizard back here and he's heading this way. Now get aboard! It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies. 
and what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. Monster Marathon! Now all in one gigantic show. Three of the newest and most exciting monster hits starring Earth champion and protector Godzilla. First thrill to Godzilla on Monster Island with more monsters than have ever appeared on the screen at one time. Then it's the action-packed Godzilla versus the cosmic monster. And finally, the classic Godzilla versus Megalon. All three in one colossal show. Rated G. down to this this is it the final week the final countdown the final matchup who won it all this is the culmination the finale of monster movie madness 2020 for those of you who are just joining us if this is your first episode if you are just now learning about this tournament well it's too late for you to vote but if you (laughs) that was not where i was going at all that just kind of came out no that's not what i meant at all uh so the tournament is something that steve turk came up with steve is uh the other voice you just heard a second ago this is something we started last year we did it again this year we're going to do it again next year each year has a slightly different theme what was this year's theme steve Uh, this year's theme was movies that the general public does not like but we the true connoisseurs of movies know are gold, pearls, emeralds. These are beauties. I mean, movies made by great directors like Ed Wood, movies made with care and love and attention to detail. I mean, what else could you ask for? Like Manos, the Hands of Fate. Exactly. Special effects that would just knock you out of your seat, like the giant claw. Right. No, these movies are gold. You know, I don't believe in the so bad it's good idea. These movies, if they make you smile, if you have a good time watching them, they're good enough for me, you know. And these movies, every one of them, even before we started the tournament, are things that I would watch willingly, on purpose, non-ironically. I would typically find something in all these films to enjoy. Uh, In fact, this tournament has been a nice uh, journey for me because it forced me to re-examine my thoughts about one particular film. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. Get to that here in a little bit. How many movies did we start with, Steve? We started with 32, and um, they worked our way through each matchup like like would be an NCAA basketball tournament. I know you know nothing about that, Derek, but sports (laughs) ball, as you call it. But one thing I wanted to tag off what you said, I also don't believe in anything such as guilty pleasures. Either it brings you pleasure or it doesn't. So I just wanted to say, these are all... Yeah. Movies that are fun to watch. Unlike you, though, I don't know if I like every single one of the 32 because I had people on Monster Bash pick these movies. There are a couple. I've watched them all. There were several I have not seen. And there were some of them like, okay, (laughs) not my cup of tea. But I mean, but for other people, it brings them enjoyment like yourself. And that's the whole point. And not everybody's going to love every movie. But it's nice to know that every movie has, has been loved by somebody out there yeah guilty pleasures man just own it have no guilt have no shame if you like the movie you like the movie that's it exactly 
What were some of the titles, just to kind of give people a taste or a reminder of what kinds of movies were on here? Things like, you know, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's Daughter. We already mentioned Manos, uh, The Giant Claw, Ed Wood's films. There was at least one Ed Wood film, Plan 9 from Outer Space. But wasn't Bride of the Monster in the mix? Yeah, Bride of the Monster was also there. We also had The Creeping Terror, Robot Monster, mm-hmm. Billy the Kid versus Dracula, which had a nice deep run. The first Gamera movie, Frankenstein Conquers the World. The Devil Bat, Navy versus the Night Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. An Ega! Some real gems, or as you said, some real pearls <laughs> on this list. And it came down to two films. Once all the voting was done, all the dust settled, we had two titles going at it for the championship. What were those two movies? The Giant Claw and Godzilla Raids Again. And as you know, all, all tournament long, I've been on Team Claw. I know everybody always thinks me I'm going to pick Godzilla, but I picked the Giant Claw to go all the way because I wanted it to go all the way because really, to me, it's a movie that, that fills this whole theme that we were going for. Where Godzilla, I think, you know, suffers a little bit because there's so many different movies with Godzilla in them and still coming out, and it's such a beloved character. And I, and I would never have picked this particular Godzilla movie to be the the one that a lot of people don't like, but is loved. There, there's a lot of them, I think, that came out, a couple in the 70s and one in the 90s or 2000s, which I would, I would maybe say would fall in that, but that fell out of our time parameters. But people Monster Bash picked Godzilla Raids again to be um, as one of the ones in the tournament, so that's how it got in here. So speaking of the time frame, because here on Monster Kid Radio we have a soft cutoff of about of 1968 for what we consider the classic era that's what we went with here for the tournament. Now that may change next year, and we'll talk about that here shortly. But that's why some movies like Dracula versus Frankenstein from the seventies did not make this list. And that one would have won right off the bat because that movie is pure Fort Knox gold. Uh, you know my feelings on that. Anybody who listens to me talk for more than 20 minutes will know that that's one of my absolute favorites. And I have a lot of respect for that film and everything they went through to make it happen. But that's probably another conversation for another time, uh, both in the past and the future. Because uh, I did talk about it already here on the show. And Steve Turk and I are going to talk about it again in the future down the line at some point. Because, you know, I can't just spend just one episode talking about that, Jim. But I'm getting dangerously off track. Back to the task at hand of the Monster Madness tournament. I said a second ago that this tournament has forced me to re-examine one of these movies. And one of those movies was one of the finalists. Godzilla Raids Again. I came into this thinking, you know, this one is probably one of my least favorite Godzilla films. I don't feel like it had nearly as much to say. It felt rushed. I didn't like it. And doing this tournament has made me look at it in a different way, partly because of a YouTube video that I stumbled across when I was doing some research on the film. I really have a lot of respect for this film now, for Godzilla Raids again, and I don't think that would have happened if not for this tournament. You're not going to be the only one. Like I said, there was movies that I had not seen before. I never had seen Iga until prepping for this tournament, and I enjoyed it, you know? And so there, I think there's probably other people out there that are seeing these different titles and are like, oh, let me, let me go look that up. Just like with your show, I love it when you have movies that I've never seen and you and somebody are talking about it. Or when you and I have done a couple of those blind, where neither one of us had seen it, like Cave of the Living Dead and Shh, The Octopus. And you find these things and you can spread the joy to other people because 
I think a lot of people have never seen those two films, and I'm sure a lot of a lot of the 32 here, not everybody had seen every one of these. The two movies that came down to the end, uh, we mentioned one of them, Godzilla Raids again. What was the other film? The Giant Claw. Wow. So there's a matchup. Two giant monsters, one landbound, one that can fly, one that's as big as a battleship, and I don't know if they ever say in the film how big Godzilla is, or that particular Godzilla is in that movie Godzilla's height varies from movie to movie I think it, exactly it, like like King Kong does in all of his movies so it's it's kind of hard to say in Godzilla reads again I'm sorry there is a list out there online if you want to look to find out what height Godzilla is in the various movies they got it I mean people really go into that and that's that's what I love about these movies is the love that a lot of listeners have and they do that extra research on these movies that we can that we can just look into and, and find quickly online. Well, and this is a different Godzilla too than the previous film, so you can't even look at that film for its stats. Either way, they're both giant monsters. Correct. From different parts of the world, Japan versus the US, different budgets, um <laughs> different <laughs> animation techniques. It's an interesting match. How many people voted this time around? We had a hundred and fifteen. So we had, I think, last week we had 117 so we were just about right there in that sweet spot the last three votes have been over 100 or higher that's been awesome it has been should we tell them who won have we milked this long enough i think so all right i haven't looked at the list i've not looked at the results just like the past previous weeks i have not looked at the numbers ahead of time steve has been monitoring this and he can tell us which movie won by what margin are we ready, Steve? I think we're ready. And I think both you and I voted for the Giant Claw, if I remember correctly. That is correct. As much as I love Godzilla Raids again now, I still voted with the Giant Claw. And I voted for the Giant Claw also because, again, like I said, the theme of the tournament. But name recognition, as Christopher Mims said the one time with last year's tournament, name recognition means a lot. And Godzilla Raids again won the tournament with 58.3% of the vote. At one time, wow! At one time, wow! Godzilla was up in the seventy-five to eighty percent range. So Giant Claw was, wait for it, clawing its way back. <laughs> <laughs> but as always, in a lot of basketball games, they run out of time. The, the buzzer went off, and he could only get as close as he got. So he, he, he did make it where it was respectable. But a lot of people I know, myself included. Or upset the giant claw didn't win, but on the other hand, I'm a Godzilla fan, so it's, it's it's kind of bittersweet. The one I was rooting for lost, but I mean Godzilla did win. I will say this: unless for some crazy reason um, we have to bring him back, Godzilla is retired from all the tournaments now. There will be not be any Godzilla movies in the tournaments if I have any say in it, because I mean, really, it, it won the best of like like in the favorite thing, and it won this one, and I think it's unfair because of name recognition. Okay. We'll see. We'll, we'll say that uh, tentatively, because depending on what we end up doing with the tournament in future years, not next year, but down the line, eh, well, I might be able to find a way to work Godzilla back in. But let's give him a break, at least for next year. It will not be in next year's tournament. That's that's 100% guaranteed. And I think for next year's tournament, I still want to stick with the March Madness theme, but we'll start probably towards the end of February because February is also flashback February, and I've already committed to Steve that, uh, this Steve anyway, to Turek, that I am going to have him on for flashback February next year to discuss Dracula versus Frankenstein because he's another Steve that enjoys that film. And we'll, we'll do that next year. And speaking of next year. 
I do have a theme. Yeah, we already have a theme lined up. Turek's been working day and night, losing sleep, working nonstop for little pay to come up with what next year's theme is going to be. Yeah, next year's theme, when we do the regions, they're going to be from different areas of the country. So we're going to have four divisions like we normally do. Instead of east, west, north, south, we're going to have Asian division, a European division, a Mexican division, and the USA division. And those are going to be movies from those regions, and we're going to pick eight of them, and they're going to go head-to-head. So to give you guys an idea, um, I'm going to give you one film from each division that's going to be in there, but the Asian division is going to have Terror is a Man, guaranteed it's going to be one of the eight films, a nice Filipino classic. I've seen it before. I'm sure you've seen it, right, Derek? Yeah, it's a Moreau, it's got a Moreau vibe for sure. It's an interesting take on it. Yes. Mexican, guaranteed in, The Brainiac. Nice. You know, I still haven't talked about that movie here on the show. I need to. One of the things we're going to do also with this is we're going to release all 32 of the films that are going to be out or in the, in the tournament in January or maybe the end of December. So if people want to watch them prior to the vote, which will start, like you said, near the end of February. And um, who knows? I mean, if these are movies that Derek hasn't done yet, he might be talking to some different people or if people want to contact Derek on their his link about being a guest host, if there's a certain movie you're like, oh, that's, when you see it come out, the list come out, that you want to jump in on and do, let Derek know. So we are getting dangerously close to Derek has to really prepare ahead of time territory. Let's move on to the next uh, <laughs> region. <laughs> the USA, well, everybody knew this movie was going to be in there because I guaranteed that this movie would be in because it had the 50-50 tie with Robot Monster, and that's the Devil Bat. The Devil Bat is guaranteed in as one of the movies in the USA division. Excellent, excellent. And one of my favorite European movies, and I think, Derek, it's one of yours... Cave of the Living Dead. So underrated. That has been one of my absolute favorite films that I've discovered through this show. And I got to agree. So good. And, and of course, it has that great line at the end. You might not believe in vampires, but I do. So good. So good. Go check it out. It's on the uh, Amazon. Is it still on Amazon Prime? Uh, I'm not sure. It but I know, even if it's not on Amazon Prime, they can go listen back to one of your past episodes if you want to get an idea of what it's like. Because... I don't believe hey, there you go. I don't believe you and I spoil it at all. It's like a James Bond horror film vibe to it. Music. Yeah, you got your vampire in my James Bond movie. You got my James Bond in your vampire movie. Yeah, it's perfect. I mean, what, what can you say? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is good. And it actually has a guy that was in a James Bond movie. No, it's it's really good. Well, that's going to be fun. Now, there's one other change we're making to the tournament. We have been using 68 as the cutoff. For next year's, we are using 69. Basically, we're just going to, anything from the 60s earlier is going to be available for me to pick from. I'm trying to pick movies out that a lot of people don't usually know about, you know, and and to try to find some of those hidden gems that are out there and and try to give them a little more of um, exposure. Yeah, give them a little bit more of a rub, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, I'll, but uh, there'll be one of the few times I actually where I'll have the list of movies and I'll talk with Derek about them just to see, you know, ones that he's covered already, ones that he hasn't covered. So Derek will have time to, if if he wants to, um, bring some of these in, and also to make sure that they're available for the, everybody to somehow get a hold of the watch if they haven't seen them before. That's the other thing I'm looking at. Like I don't want to have something that can't be seen because it's not available anywhere. That would just be terrible right. for the, the general public. But it, it's going to be. 
a cool tournament. You know, we're going to have a little bit of everything. We're going to have in the Asian division, it's going to be mostly Japanese, but we have, like I said, we're going to have a Philippine movie or two, a Korean movie. Um, Europe, we're going to have Russia, um, Germany, Spain. I think I'm going to Paul Nashi film is going to be popping in in Europe. Right on. That'll make uh, some people happy. And, uh, Excellent. I, I, can, I can imagine Rod Burnett where he's going to vote. Yeah. And in, in the Mexican movies, I mean, really, to be honest, a lot, a lot of people don't. I mean, I know you've been doing your luchador movies, you know. Um, it's coming up. It's coming up. Yeah. And so it's we're going we're gonna to have a couple of those in there. But some other movies that are going back into the 30s or 40s, if if I can find that they're available for people to see. You know, that, that's the hardest part. That might be the hardest, yeah. the hardest thing. In the USA, where there's a lot of movies to pick from there. Exactly. Okay. Well, this will be fun. I'm looking forward to next year. This has been fun this year. I'm glad that uh, we've been able to pull it off and actually keep it week to week to week here on every episode of MKR. Uh, <laughs> I've just had fun doing this. Thanks for putting this together, man. Oh, you're no problem. And one movie I'm going to recommend for you, Derek, to watch is uh, Wuchi the Demon Slayer. It's a movie that came out 12 years ago. And that was a movie that you just covered on the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. It's actually something you would really like. It's a Korean film. It's readily available on DVD, Blu-ray, and I think it might be um, digital downloads. I think the digital download is only the dubbed version, where if you get the DVD or the Blu-ray, you can get the dubbed and the subtitled version. See, I'm trying to give your podcast a, a pop here. Come on, man. Oh, that's fine. You know, I'm the, I just, I just want to make the sure Diecast you watch Movie it. Review Podcast. Yeah, that's where. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, Ben picked it, and um, you can hear our thoughts. And obviously, you know, you can tell I must like it. Or I wouldn't tell Derek to watch a movie I didn't like. <laughs> I'm not that cruel. <laughs> I I appreciate that. Will Mikhail like it or not? I mean, Ben picked it, so obviously, you know, he likes it. But you know. You can listen to it. It's a 36-minute thing, and uh, so it, 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 we don't spoil anything. We just give our, our general vibe of the movie. The other thing that I want to mention, I want to bring up right before we wrap up here, Steve, is we had some people contact me about our Conan the Destroyer chatting from last week's episode. I am now more than ever convinced or committed I suppose, to making sure that that is something we talk about over on the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, uh, compare and contrast between Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer, that that's going to be an interesting chat. And I'm looking forward to revisiting the film. That is what I, I wasn't even going to bring up Conan the Destroyer this episode. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to give it its proper due because, like I said, some people did reach out to me. And I think it's going to be uh, something that, Listeners are going to dig. I'm looking forward to it. So let's make sure we ha do that sooner rather than later. Okay, Steve? Definitely, Derek. I mean, you are the uh, grand kuba of podcasting. Let's not, let's not get crazy. Terror with two of America's most blood-chilling science fiction shockers, Island of the Burning Damned, and Godzilla's Revenge. In this quiet setting, a tale of prehistoric horror is about to unfold with a science-battling awakening of long-gone giants. Fighting amongst each other for the conquest of our planet. See the giant spiders spin their web of fear around their enemies. Godzilla's revenge knows no limit, no end, 
no stopping. See man's last attempt at saving humanity from destruction and Godzilla's revenge. And on the same shot field program, Island of the Burning Dam. What is that strange noise and burning white heat that drove people to their death? I have been convinced that this island has become the center of an invasion. The central landing point for beings from another planet. What happens when an unknown power from outer space uses our radar signals as life-saving beacons to bring it to Earth to consume our energy? Island of the Burning Damned, an island desperate for help. In January of 1974, the American Broadcasting Company brought forth on this continent a new sitcom, conceived by Derry Marshall and dedicated to the proposition that the 1950s were awesome. That sitcom was, of course, Happy Days. It ran for 10 years and 255 episodes, casting a long shadow across American popular culture. Week after week, millions thrilled to the adventures of Richie, Fonzie, Joni, Hotsey, Ralph Mouth, and the whole gang from Milwaukee. Hello, friends. I'm Joe, and I'm half of the broadcasting team behind These Days Are Ours, a podcast dedicated to all things Happy Days. Together with my co-host Emily, we'll be exploring the series episode by episode, breaking down the themes and telling you what it all means. You can join us on this journey by visiting thesedaysareours.libson.com. Just like the original Happy Days, we'll have new episodes every Tuesday. Be there or be square. And baby, dance, come and dance with me. Hear the beat of the mountain sea. Ride, baby, ride, come and ride with me. Let your feet go easy. What do you make of this? Where does the other end go? It dumps into the ocean. It looks exactly like the South American Fantigua fish. I hope you can take one alive, Sheriff. I still believe that a human clawed that girl to death. The Beach Girls and the Monster. Starring John Hall, Sue Casey, and the glamorous Watusi dancing girls from Hollywood's famed Whiskey-A-Go-Go nightclub. Music by Frank Sinatra, Jr. You got a monster in the turf. Chicks, do you have a problem? You won't have after you meet the monster on the beach. If you see this ghoul, play it cool. Beauties in bikinis. Laughing, singing, surfing, sinning. Beach party lovers making hey hey in the moonlight while the monster waits and watches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one will kill you.
What number is this? What am I calling? You dialed into the feedback section of the show. We got an email this week from Tom. He is the man behind the Go Forth and Game podcast. Tom writes, hey man, I just wanted to drop you a note thanking you for covering Dracula versus Frankenstein. I've heard you mention it for a long time and had it on my watch list, but just hadn't gotten around to it. The show pushed me to watch it finally, and I'm glad I did. That was a fun movie. Yes, production quality is not fantastic, but it's a blast. Nish was giving his best performance as always. You couldn't tell that he may have been ill or feeble. Cheney was fun, too. It was a little sad seeing Cheney, but as you and Steve mentioned on the show, bravo to Adamson for giving them work. I thought Xandor was a pretty good Dracula. He was creepy and had some gravitas on the screen. I'm glad you explained the ending and the change in his makeup because it was abrupt. Speaking of abrupt, Mike's passing was a shock. In lieu of your explanation of the ending, I see it and the shock is lessened. But I didn't know that when I watched it, and I thought it was a bold move by Adamson. All in all, I'm happy that I finally am able to check it off the watch list. And I'll say this, speaking of Steve Sullivan, he's probably one of my favorite regular guests after Micah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, He comes to the show with high enthusiasm, fun, and a wealth of knowledge about each movie and the rabbits you chase. I've enjoyed interacting with him during Social Distance Saturdays. Speaking of Social Distance Saturdays, thank you. This has been so much fun, and I've gotten to see some movies I would never have had access to otherwise. I really enjoyed They Came From Beyond Space, and especially House of the Gorgon. I like that movie so much. Josh did an amazing job, and it was fun watching the actors work. You could see they were having fun. Thanks to you and Josh for the showing. The Alpha Omega Man was fun, too, and Dementia 13. I'd heard about it for years, but never put the time into it. I'm glad you picked it, because it was really good. And it was great to see a Santo film. This is getting along, so I'll end. Thanks again for MKR. It is a highlight of every week. Thanks for Social Distance Saturdays and giving us a new matinee experience so many of us didn't get when we were younger. Hello to Brenda, your friend Tom. Tom, thank you for writing in. I'm so glad that I was able to motivate you to watch Dracula vs. Frankenstein and that you enjoyed the experience. This movie... The more I think about it, the more I watch it, the more I enjoy it. I mean, I feel like I could go... Deep, and I mean really deep in exploring and just really dissecting this film. Probably much deeper than any of the filmmakers intended or did while they were making the movie itself. In fact, there's been some noise lately about this movie getting a re-release. I don't really know all the details. I need to do more than just quickly skim over the article. But there are a couple of articles that popped up online about this movie hitting the drive-ins, potentially? I don't know all the details. Again, if anybody out there knows the details, I'd love to hear from you. And I would love to share that information here. But there's been a lot of talk with everything going on with the coronavirus and the coronapocalypse, COVID-19, movie theaters shutting down, that sort of thing. That drive-in movie theaters may be slowly making a comeback. Not that they're going to build a bunch more, but the existing drive-ins may start seeing an uptick in business once drive-in season starts because... You can see the movie from within your car, and it's probably the safest movie-going experience to see a movie in public as opposed to going to a movie theater and sitting in a theater with a whole bunch of people, that sort of thing. Whereas if you're contained to your car and the people working at the drive-in don't have the virus and that sort of thing, it's probably the safest option for you if you have to go out to see a movie. And plus, going to the drive-in is just flat-out awesome. And if Dracula versus Frankenstein could potentially be hitting some drive-in movie screens, again, I don't know if that's exactly what's happening, but... Man, that would be so cool, right? Anyway, thank you for writing in. I'll make sure I'll play a promo for your podcast here in a little bit. As far as Social Distance Saturdays go, 
I'm having so much fun putting those together. They are a real blast. Diving into my collection of movies here, going through what's really out there, available in the public domain for people to see, has been a lot of fun. And when I have filmmakers like Josh Kennedy or Christopher R. Mim or... This week, we have a film from Ansel Farage. When they give us permission to play their movies during the stream, that's just special because it gives you guys and gals a chance to see something that hasn't been shown over and over and over again by every known horror host. Oh, speaking of horror hosts, we might even have a horror host pop in this time around as well. He reached out to me. I'm not going to say who it is, but if you've listened to the show for a while, well, you've heard him once on the show, and uh, hopefully... It'll work out, and he'll be able to contribute to the show as well. So speaking of which, if you are a filmmaker, a creative, or a small business owner would like to maybe talk a little bit about what you're doing and you want to contribute to Social Distance Saturday, drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. I'll talk a little bit more about this whole small business thing later on in the show, so stay tuned for that. Again, Tom, thanks for writing in. If you want to be cool like Tom, write me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Of course, we also have a voicemail line. I don't know if anybody's really used it lately. I'll have to double check, but our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. It's 503-4795-MKR. hysterical, hilarious horrors when you join those Bowery boys as overnight guests in a mansion of merry maniacs. We just want your heads. Well, oh, well, if you said that in a foot. Our heads? Uncle Anton, the scientific stoop. Oh, oh, oh. Would you like a high cut or a low cut, sir? Oh, I'd like a low cut. Uncle Derek, the medical madman. What is it you're trying to say? Help! Yeah. Cousin Francine, the fluff with the stuff. I mean business. Aunt Amelia, who's no camellia. The butler Grisson, he's gruesome. <gasps> the family tree, a man-eating honeysuckle. Boy, oh boy, I feel just like a space cadet. This will register his brain potential. <laughs> My friend here has a vacuum-packed head. The Bowery Boys get the heebies, the jeebies, the willies, and the shakes while you get the laughs of the year. Gentlemen, I have a suggestion. 50 50. No, no, no. Routine six, Satch. must kill to live. He is 104 years old. Your eyes? What's wrong with your eyes? Yes, look at him well. This thief of time, this man who could cheat death, who knows the secret of immortality. I've been taking this fluid every six hours now. It's madness. It is what keeps me alive. So you see, you must operate. You 
You know what will happen if you don't. Yes, you will die. Liar. Cheat. Murderer. Offender against nature and God. See the liquid that cheats death. See what he steals from the tissues of his victims so that he may never grow old and never die. No, 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 don't, don't do it. Anton Differing is the man trapped by his own fearful invention. Hazel Court, the girl who knows his love, but not his shocking secret. George, I love you so much. Christopher Lee, the doctor who gleans the monstrous truth and must submit to blackmail to save the girl he loves. If you perform this operation and perform it successfully, I shall release her. If you don't perform this operation, or if anything should happen to me while you're operating, Janine will not be seen by you or anyone else again. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week we are going to continue our issue-by-issue examination of films covered with article-length features in Famous Monsters. We are up to issue 18 from July of 1962. This issue contains a look at movies coming soon to the theaters, an article by 13-year-old Joe Dante, yes, that Joe Dante, about the 50 worst horror movies ever made, a close examination of this article would make a good MKR show, and makeup contest winners. The only films featured were the Bird Eye Gordon classics, The Amazing Colossal Man, and War of the Colossal Beast. They are reviewed in a two-part Inside Darkest Acula feature. It was an eight-page article loaded with 11 photos. Here is how it started. I think you will enjoy this picture. I did. I saw the preview of it together with Edmund Hamilton whose Pygmy Island I sold for filming to Sol Lesser. Pygmy Island had something in common with Dr. Cyclops, and was described as a powerful, vivid, super science tale of tiny men and giant rats and snakes when it was first published in Weird Tales magazine. Hamilton liked The Amazing Colossal Man better than The Incredible Shrieking Man, although I preferred Richard Matheson's screenplay to the scenario created by Burt Gordon and Mark Hanna. Considering Colossal Man cost but a fraction of Shrinking Man, it certainly was worth complimenting. Much of the picture's power is derived from the performance of Glenn Langan as the giant. He does an excellent job. Langan plays Colonel Glenn Manning, victim of a freak accident during the detonation of the first plutonium bomb. In a heroic effort to save another man's life, it at first appears that Colonel Manning has lost his own when the blast sears every inch of skin from his body. The scene where he is charred before the camera's eye by the atomic radiation is a hair razor and is effectually reprised twice during the enfoldment of the film. The article continues with a brief synopsis of The Amazing Colossal Man, which was written shortly after Forey saw the film. It ends with this. The Amazing Colossal Man meets his apparent doom at Boulder Dam, but the clink of coins at a healthy box office can often work wonders in reviving the deadest of monsters. So let's put it this way, I wouldn't be amazed to learn of a sequel. 
The article jumps to the present to talk about the upcoming release of The War of the Colossal Beast. Run for the hills, folks. The Colossal Beast is coming. The Beast is a sequel to The Amazing Colossal Man. While shooting, it was first known as The Return of the Colossal Man and later The Revenge of the Colossal Man. I got the story of the sequel from Burt Gordon, who wrote and produced it, on the set of the picture while the final scenes were being shot. The Colossal Man was going through his king-like performance of swatting at a gnat-like model plane. His makeup was reminiscent of the giant in one of Gordon's previous pictures, Cyclops. Before he continues till the end with a detailed synopsis of the picture, down to spoiling the ending. Bird-Eye Gordon knew his target audience would be readers of FM and was more than willing to provide Forey with photos and information on all his movies. Over the years and issues, we come to realize that Mr. Big was a friend of famous monsters. This colossal double feature has yet to be covered by Derek and his pals. There you go, buddy. Another two for the list. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. This segment, Kenny mentioned an article written by a 13-year-old Joe Dante in that particular issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland, in which Joe mentioned the 50 worst movies of all time. Listen to me call him Joe, like I'm on a first-name basis with him. Well, he was a kid at that point, so he wasn't a Mr. Dante yet. Anyway, Kenny mentioned this list, and it sounds fascinating. I don't think I've ever actually read it, so I might ask Kenny to break down that list for me because at some point, maybe later this year, that might be a fun thing to go through. Just see what the 50 worst movies are according to a 13-year-old Joe Dante in the 1960s, I guess. See how it holds up today. I think it might be a fascinating conversation. And of course, Kenny, thank you so much for being involved in Monster Kid Radio. Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland is one of the highlights of my week. So, gracias. Did I say that right? Filmed on a spectacular scale in breathtaking Technicolor, here is the bone-chilling motion picture the critics have called a classic shocker, The Mill of the Stone Mill. Why do beautiful young women suddenly turn to stone? Against this eerie background, a twisted mind has plotted a series of sadistic events you wouldn't believe possible until you see them. It's a corpse. Handsome Pierre Brice and Europe's fabulous new star, the extravagantly beautiful Sheila Gabel. They say that trouble began with a woman, and you'll see why in the terrifying Mill of the Stone Women. You've never seen anything like the Mill of the Stone Women, for until now, no one has dared tell such a shocking story on the motion picture screen. Mill of the Stone Women is the entertainment event of a lifetime.
don't miss the mill of the stone women. Night falls on the great halls of Frenzywood. Chris and Jerry read this week's comics with a sense of terror and foreboding. Which books will they enjoy and which will unsettle them with an eerie mood striking into their very souls? They work their way through the rare and mysterious tomes to find those worthy of your attention. A knock comes to the door, bringing something strange and otherworldly that no one has ever seen before. It's the Professor Frenzy Show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy Show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy Show. If you like indie comics and also like podcasts, please try the Professor Frenzy Show. Find the show in iTunes search and Facebook. Episodes tweeted out on at Professor Frenzy on Twitter. Thank you. Pounding across the motion picture screen comes the most terrifying monster of them all. Gamera, the Invincible. Gamera, the super monster that even the H-bomb cannot destroy. Gamera, the Invincible. Gamera, consuming raw atomic power. Power to destroy entire cities. Open fire! Man's most destructive weapons have no effect on Gamera, the Invincible. The mightiest nuclear weapons ever devised are powerless against... Gamera, the Invincible. Is humanity doomed? Will the world be destroyed? The United Nations is called to emergency session in a last desperate effort to save the world. We have one plan that we think might work. We have discussed Plan Z with the Japanese authorities, and they agree it is the best of our alternative plans. Is that correct, sir? That is so. Plan Z is hope of the world. A cast of thousands at the mercy of the most terrifying monster that ever lived. Brian Donlevy as General Arnold. Gamera is beyond comprehension. He must be stopped now. Albert Decker as the Secretary of Defense. Will Plan Z stop Gamera? Gamera, the Invincible. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. I can't remember the last time I had Rod on my show. I think I've actually been on his show twice, at least, since the time I've had him on mine. So I figured it's time to return the favor. Plus, he posted something on Facebook that got me thinking, you know what? We really need to get back to this quote-unquote, series of films. It's Rod Barnett from the Nashi cast, the bloody pit of Rod, and the president of the Dracula vs. Frankenstein fan club. <laughs> 
one of those things is not true. Oh, you stopped doing the Nashi cast? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. That's most assuredly <laughs> the one. No, my friends. Oh, man. Okay. I'm not going to open that can of worms. I'm going to I'm gonna persevere. You know, I can't remember the last time I was on your show. I, I should have looked it up and determined what we talked about the last time I was on the show. But I honestly, I can't remember to save my life. Uh, let's see. It might have been for Edgar August Poe with uh, Castle of Blood back uh, in 2018. That makes sense. That makes sense. You're right. That was probably it. Yeah. And of course, that was another Antonio Margariti thing. I did never, you know, uh, let's be. Oh, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the weird thing is I never expected to become some kind of online podcasting champion for Antonio Margariti. We just kind of fell into it. John Hudson and I over on the Bloody Pit, we just kind of fell into talking about his films because nobody else really seemed to be doing so. And when you looked at his career, there were just so many different uh, genres and so many different things that he had done across the whole of his career. And, you know, some of them was good, some of them bad, some of them, you know, but there was never a point where you could look at his career and go, well, you know, past this point, it was all crap because, you know, there were there were good and bad in everything that he did. And he's just a, he was just a fascinating guy. I, I would agree with most people who say, you know, especially aficionados of uh, Italian genre cinema. That may, you know, maybe he wasn't top tier, but you know, he, even if he's just beneath top tier, he's still constantly busy. There's so much to dig into, and even the uh, even the things that don't always work have something interesting in them. So it's nice to be kind of rooked into this Antonio Margariti thing. Uh, would point people toward uh, Adrian Smith's excellent blog about Antonio Margariti films called uh, Blogariti which is my favorite blog title of all time, probably. But the uh, occasional updates he puts in there going through the the career of Antonio Margariti, it's great. He's been able to interview a couple of people who were in uh, Margariti's films. I don't, I don't know. I just find a lot of joy in Antonio Margariti films there, even when uh, – very strange. There's still a lot of fun to be had. I don't have as much experience with the filmmaker as you do, but what I have seen, and it's mostly for the show – I've adored, I just fall in love with his aesthetic, the way he is constructing these little mini worlds in which to tell these stories. They always feel full to me. It doesn't ever feel like, you know, was given a set and say, hey, go make a movie. Even if that's what happened, he still feels like he fills those sets, those, those worlds with real characters that have existed in this world before he says action and long after he says cut. And it's weird to be able to say that, too, about some of his films, because like with a lot of uh, Italian genre filmmakers, by the time the 80s rolled around, budgets were, had fallen precipitously and you weren't getting the kinds of time and money that you were getting back in the 60s and 70s necessarily. So to look at the, his output all the way through the late 80s and realize that not only was he getting a lot of films made, even if they were sometimes made for the straight-to-DVD market. You can look at stuff like the incredible You're the Hunter from the Future or Cold Name Wild Geese or all the stuff in the, that he made in the 80s where you're looking at it and you're just kind of stunned. All these uh, kind of uh, action films that he made in the 80s, some of the ones he made in the 80s I think are better than some of the stuff that was getting churned out by low-budget film studios like Canon over here sometimes. I mean, I've seen more of the Canon films. I just said I didn't see – I haven't seen a lot of Margariti stuff. But uh, knowing some of the Canon films that came out of that time, Death Wish is fine. I mean, it's fun. It's cool, whatever. But, yeah, it definitely shows its seams, <laughs> and it hasn't aged very well as a lower-tier budget <laughs> um, <laughs> action movie. 
So yeah, especially the sequels. So yeah, it's, um, the, it's the sequels that where where canon shows it's pure pure madness. It's like we have Charles yeah, Bronson. Yeah. Okay, and do we have a script? No, no script. Get the cameras rolling. Let's go. Pretty much, that's what it feels like. Whereas I never get that sense from Margariti, even if that happened with him. The fun with Margariti is that he really is the the epitome of the guy who was being handed money to make you know a lower budget version of X. X being the, you know the whatever the current huge hit was. So you get movies like Ark of the Sun God, which is what would that be? What would that be a ripoff of? Let me think real hard. Uh, Ark of the Sun God. It'll come to me eventually, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, and then you have all the, you know, kind of First Blood Part 2 was a huge hit. So you have The Last Blood and Tiger Joe and The Last Hunter and stuff like that. He did it. He did a number of spaghetti westerns as well, some of which are really good, some of which, you know, will get the job done for a large degree. You know, you have things like And God Said to Cain, which is kind of an almost spaghetti western horror film with like gothic trappings, which is always fascinating. And then one that, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, it's a great film. And Vengeance, which is uh, getting more and more attention over the years. Vengeance, strangely enough, is is uh, one that's turning out to be something that people, once they discover it, kind of latch on to. And it's, its capital has risen in the uh, estimation of people as more and more people have seen it over the years. It's kind of neat. It's uh, there, There's a slow but steady reappraisal of his career. Strangely enough, just as individual movies get discovered, I do still hold out hope that one day uh, we will be able to get some kind of high def release of the full uncut version of Yor the Hunter from the future. And that, you know, that's three and a half hours of your people, three and a half hours because it was done for Italian television. It was a four part Italian television thing. And so uh, there's just all these extra monsters that got cut out for the theatrical cut. And uh, which is which is really frustrating when you realize that you lose the like big lake monster with a single eye. I mean, who cuts that out of a movie. Right. That's madness. You don't do that. One of the great things about Margariti is that the film we're going to talk about today is one of a series of science fiction movies he made in the 60s on budgets that are incredibly tiny. They did them in, you know, very, very smart ways. You kind of had to be smart. If you didn't have the money, you got to be smart. You got to figure it out. One of the ways they got away with uh, murder making uh, several of these movies back to back is they made uh, this movie along with three co-features a couple years ago here on Monster Kid Radio. We talked about Wild Wild Planet and uh, this film and Wild Wild Planet and then two other subsequent films were all made within the space of three months on all the same sets with a lot of the same cast. When you realize that, it, it kind of gives you a newfound respect for the movies actually being <laughs> as together as they are. Because, uh, well, I mean, I'll just say this. There's this great quote from uh, Antonio Margariti himself. There's a great book. If you've not stumbled across this before, people, there's a great book by uh, Matt Blake called Science Fiction Italian Style. And I recommend it because it's a great reference work. And uh, it allows you to get a lot of uh, background information on some of these movies. Uh, Mr. Blake has been able to interview a lot of folks and talk to talk to a lot of folks. He's been able to get hold of some folks that were involved in these things. And it's really great because he clearly has a, a strong love for this uh, this weird little subset of science fiction. Never did so many make so much for so little in a weird little way. But the uh, <laughs> <laughs> there were early in his career. 
Margariti was known. He was a, he was a technician and he was a special effects man. And so he worked on uh, special effects sequences for lots of different people's films. We're talking, you know, different sword and sandal movies and things of this nature. When he moved into the director's chair, it was primarily because he was so good at filming the special effects and getting that stuff on screen, at, you know, on time and on budget. And so a couple of his first movies were science fiction movies. We just recently over on the Bloody Pit covered his second science fiction movie, which uh, is called Battle of the Worlds. Now, remember, Battle of the Worlds is different from War of the Planets, which is the film we'll be talking about today, uh, because the titles get really, really very much samey. The first three films of this whole run, Wild Wild Planet, War of the Planets, War Between the Planets. I mean, it's really, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you and I had to clarify which movie we're actually doing because of that. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's one of those things where if you're not careful, you can misremember. I have mislabeled different things, uh, staring right at them and knowing what they were, and still written the wrong title down. So about a month ago, we covered Battle of the Worlds. Battle of the Worlds. Our spaceships are decimated when the invading planet's insurmountable pull of gravity begins a shattering cosmic destruction. Only one scientific mind can stop the stellar holocaust. Your days are numbered. I prefer that you speak before the United Commission. He alone knows there are only 80 days to live, and he must convince the world of this threatening catastrophe. Can he find a formula that will save the Earth? Feel the torment of desperate passions as men and women live the last panic-filled hours of love in history's final chapter. It starts Claude Rains as a scientist who makes a discovery, and there's a basically there's a lot of stuff that goes on. But all you got to know is Claude Rains is in it. That makes that one stand out, right? So you got Claude Rains. It's kind of it kind of stands on its own, and you understand that one's hard to mistake for the others, except for the rather generic title, Battle of the Worlds. About four years after that, Margariti returned to the genre and made a series of these four interconnected movies, which eventually became known as the the Gamma One movies. It, it's always been – there's been a lot of talk over the years about how these things came about. What's great is there's a fantastic quote here that Mr. Blake has from Margariti. He says uh, they were put together with the intention of a global cinematic release, but they were not put together with the intention of a global cinematic release, but for distribution on TV. Margariti says two episodes were produced – by an Italian TV station, the other ones by an American one. Unfortunately, the stupid producer had the idea of releasing them to the cinema. You can imagine a TV movie from the 60s dealing with spaceships and such special effects on the big screen. It doesn't make for a very good impression. I remember we had three months to shoot the entire series, including post-production. I directed four complete movies in only three months, and believe me, it was very hard work. For everyone else involved, it was a fun project without any real stories or ideas, and the results look exactly like that. Now, okay, I love his honesty <laughs> with that statement because it is true. In this film, at a certain point, and in uh, the what you can either call like the, the third or the fourth, it, it really kind of depends on how you want to define the, the order in which these films should be watched or could be watched mm -hmm. because they were released – on different schedules in different countries and they were all made at the same time. So I, I have no idea who had the nightmare job of actually editing these movies together really quickly because Lord knows something could have ended up in the wrong film at some point in time. Who knows? But there does come a point in uh, a battle, bet was war between the worlds, 
Or no, is it War Between the Planets? See, I'm already mixed up. Look at this. This is sad. <laughs> I think it's planets. I think it's planets. Well, no, no. Let's see. Let's see. Okay, so not in this one, but in oh, geez, this is this is craziness. This is the okay, yeah, yeah the here War it is. of the Planets. Yeah. Okay, so we're we're in we're in War of the Planets now. War Between the Planets is probably the third one, and I got to tell you, there comes a point where about oh, 30 minutes into War Between the Planets where you're not sure for a good 20 minutes exactly what's happening or why people are doing things. I mean, they're definitely doing things, but you don't understand necessarily why. And that's just because they were trying to get this thing made without necessarily having the story all nailed down for everybody involved. And so when you can just imagine that in the editing bay, and with the uh, the dubbers trying to figure out how to string this all together and make it comprehensible, it had to be a nightmare. So it's kind of amazing that War Between the Planets, uh, not this film, but it's kind of amazing that War Between the Planets makes any sense whatsoever. I think my cohort on the podcast, John Hudson, once summed it up as Earth confronts a farting planet. And that's pretty much it. I mean, it's a it's a it's a gaseous planet that keeps, you know, exploding gas out into space. And 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 maybe that's about as deep as that movie needs to be thought about. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> OK, because because honestly, having watched all four of these movies a few times, War Between the Planets is also known as Planet on the Prowl. It's probably the weakest of the four. And it's still got stuff in it that's worth seeing, mostly the visuals. You can't let them. Get out of there first. Blast them now. Drop now. You've got to do it. Dad, listen to me. From the remotest reaches of the cosmos, an unknown force is overpowering mankind. I can't get enough buildup. We'll never get off the ground. Countdown. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, fire. The greatest threat in outer space, the war of the planets. You can't stop them. Lazar's no good. You can't stop them. They're lights, but they've got shape. They're more than lights. When you have them within, you experience power of mind beyond all comprehension. Working feverishly, courageous astronauts vainly search for a transparent enemy that has overtaken their space station, paralyzing every form of life and motion. And prepare for immediate evacuation of all space installations. All the forces on Earth have been mobilized to combat this invisible, supernatural, deadly power that is crippling man's progress in space. No signs of rigor mortis. No signs of decay or corruption. Man's willpower, his will to live, is being crushed. It's a battle of wits against a subtle enemy for which there is no defense. This one's pretty solid. This one, this isn't my favorite. I think Wild Wild Planet will always be my favorite one because... It's the most visually inventive, and uh, you know, every five minutes it seems that there's something on screen that – it's not making you wonder why it exists on the screen in this story. It's just making you go, holy crap, look at that. Yeah, but, exactly. But with this one, uh, this one's pretty good. This almost strikes a strange midpoint between the what the hell are we doing 
point that War Between the Planets takes and the uh, kind of focused madness that is Wild Wild Planet. You know, hearing what you said about, uh, and, and quoting from that book, that two of the films were shot here and the other two were over there, and it suddenly makes a little bit more sense as to why it seems like there's a totally different cast uh, in the, the latter two films versus these two films. Because this film has some returning characters. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that kind of lends itself to what I was saying earlier about how it feels like a fully developed world. There are returning characters that come back. Now, we keep seeing their sequels or their follow-ups. They're not really connected. There are some returning characters, but you could watch these really in any order, I feel like. I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you start with a third film, but you can <laughs> yes, watch these agree. in any order. Agree. Yeah, You're right. I mean, especially the uh, with Tony Russell in the lead in the first two and Wild Wild Planet in this one. I, I got to tell you, did you have I – don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that had this thought, but I doubt I am. When watching this movie again, I just kept thinking to myself, man, in 1966, Tony Russell would have been the perfect Reed Richards. Oh, wow. He's got the, he's got the, yeah. the graying at the temples, and his facial features oh, are very much exactly like Reed Richards. I'm mean, like, man, he's like a really intense uh, Reed Richards. Yeah. Check him out. Especially, especially for that era of Fantastic Four, you know, early Fantastic Four. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that'd been great. That's just, you know, that's another one of those, you know, movies that doesn't exist, but boy, we can cast it in our head, right? (laughs) Man, wow. Tony Russell is, uh, he's from Wisconsin, so he's, he's our American in this, this sea of Italians. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) he, he does, he does quite well for himself. Uh, Of course, you know, any movie in which you get to spend a lot of time being uh, the object of, uh, uh, sexual frustration for Lisa Gastoni. I mean, that's probably a good day. That's one beautiful lady. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that. Uh, I'm not saying that I think she's attractive. I'm saying she is attractive. She is very uh, attractive. She is a beautiful woman in this, and I appreciate that in terms of constructing the story. And this feels like a very European or Italian thing that when creating these characters, they're allowed to have a little bit of that sex appeal while still having more to them than just the sex appeal. Yeah. You know, she's not just frustrated Lieutenant Connie because Commander Mike's working too hard and not paying attention to her. There's a little bit more to it than that. I mean, she gets really involved in what's going on as well, and especially in the first film in Wild Wild Planet, but she still has some of that here too. And I appreciated that. True, true. And the, the, honestly, I, I don't know how much English Miss Gastoni knew but they play off each other very well in this. I don't, you know, like I say, who knows in what sequence these things were filmed or if they were filming sequences for all four, you know, like for two different movies at the same time. Who the heck knows? But they're very good together on screen. There's a bit of chemistry there. Yeah. And I really like the two of them together. And I'm disappointed that they're not going to be in the other two films. Well, you know, they this were, is the last time we get to see this couple, you know, and it is a little disappointing. But I, I have to say that the leads in the uh, it's, it's going to be always a matter of taste. But I do think that the leads in the third and the fourth films are good as well. Uh, but the the thing is, I do think I prefer Tony Russell. There's just uh, there's something about him that I think gives the gives everything a little bit of. He he doesn't he comes off sometimes as gruff, like a you know a commander of this type of station would have to be. But at the same time, he doesn't seem like he's a jerk. If memory serves, there are times in uh, the third and fourth films where it's like I wanted the the guy playing the uh, the lead in those movies to he needs to back it down a little bit because he's he's coming off he's coming off as a jerk. Yeah, Tony Russell, like you said, he's an American, uh, and this was pretty common. And I think we've talked about this a little bit here on the show that a lot of European cinema they would usually bring in like one American actor and offer him or her, sometimes it was an actress, a lot of money uh, to appear in their lower budget productions and treat him like a star. 
as opposed to being treated as just another you know, leading man in Hollywood or whatever. And it, this happened a lot with spaghetti westerns and Euro spies and clearly in some of these science fiction films as well. Tony Russell's uh, filmography, he looks like he did some Euro spy films, right? He did a couple of peplums. He did, he, well, two mm-hmm. or three. He's definitely got the look. He's got the build. So he was, he did some sword and sandal. He did a, he did at least two Euro spy films, if memory serves. Uh, one of which I know I've seen, but it's been so long. I cannot remember what I thought of it at the time. Uh, so the title is really cool. <laughs> It's really cool, though, which is the only reason I remember that I saw it, which is kind of sad to say. He had a really big career, even while he was um, doing things in front of the camera. He also he's that guy who set up and was a big part of the dubbing association over there, the English language, English language dubbing association over there. So he his voice, even if uh, he is not on screen, his voice turns up in a lot of English language tracks for Italian movies for a lot of years over there. So let's just say he's, he's he definitely fits the uh, template of the American abroad trying to figure out a way to make a buck. Sure. That's what a lot of them did, too, is when they weren't making films in Italy, they were working with that association. I forget the exact name of it, did, uh, of the organization. Roger Brown was the president of it for a long time. And he, of course, is the man in Argo Man, which now gives me an excuse to play that trailer in this episode. Yes. Um, <laughs> Because <laughs> I love Argo Man. Yeah, you know, Roger Brown, Tony Russell, a lot of them would do uh, dubbing work for the films to be released in English-speaking markets. Because a lot of these European films, they just spoke whatever language they spoke, knowing that they were going to dub them later for wherever they're going to send them. Which is pretty similar to what, like, the Shaw Brothers would do, too. They just kind of did all their dialogue in post. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, he did uh, – I'm looking at his – filmography right now and it looks like he did eventually come back over to the states and did a lot of tv yep. uh the invasion of carol enders i didn't realize he was in that huh he did a night gallery episode you know death valley days all kinds of stuff like that lou grant chips vegas well the thing is he didn't have the hollywood career he wanted which is why he went to europe in the first place and then you know he was making a lot of movies over there so it certainly paid off for him what was the Eurospy film that you, you said you oh, only remember because of the title target golden seven that's an awesome title. Isn't it though? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Plus, Erica Blank is the, the femme fatale in it, the the kind of uh, the female lead. And anytime you can see Erica Blank, is, is it's a good day. Let's put it that way. No, I, I love Euros by Films. And if there was more hours in the day and or I didn't need sleep or socialization with my family, my wife, <laughs> uh, I would launch a Euros by podcast because I just love that subgenre. But Anyway, it would, it would be a lot of field. fun. Speaking of Eurospy, years ago there was a, a wonderful reference book published called the Eurospy Guide. Fantastic book that'll give you a lot of information about this stuff. And it was also written by Matt Blake, the guy who wrote this science fiction Italian style book I was referencing. The science fiction Italian style book. I'm going to make sure that there is a link in the show notes for people to pick that up. It'll go to Amazon through my affiliate link. So by doing that, you actually kick like. 10 cents to me or whatever it is Amazon decides to pay that day uh, if you wanted to pick that book up. And what the heck, I'll make sure there's a link to the Eurospy guide as well, which I actually own. Uh, I believe that was uh, Midnight Marquee Press, wasn't it? I think so, yes. And uh, like I said, I've got that as well. and was using that for research when at one point I was going to do a commentary track for Argo Man. Kind of fell apart, but whatever. That's a loss to all of us. Yeah, well, you know, I suppose I could still do it as a fan 
thing. But the reason I bring up Argo Man a couple of times is because Argo Man was one of these films I was introduced to through Dorado Films when I was doing work with them. And one of the things I did with them years ago was a Dorado Films podcast. And on that podcast, I had Robert Murnell on as a guest. So every time I see his name pop up somewhere on Facebook or whatever, I just kind of check in because he was somebody who came in to talk about some Jess Franco films on the Dorado Films podcast. He was uh, in the, I don't know if he still does it, the El Franconomicon website or the I'm in a Jess Franco state of mind website or blog. I don't know if that's still him or not, but he would do that. He came on to talk about Jess Franco, but then you mentioned him because you said that you and he were talking about a campaign to maybe get these four films, these Gamma One films on Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What it is is that um, Mr. Monell and I have been, for about the past year, he's done a couple of episodes of The Bloody Pit, and uh, he and I uh, got to do a commentary track for a, a Mondo Macabro release of, a, of an obscure Spanish film called The Killer of Dolls, and uh, nice. so, so we stay we stay in contact with each other pretty much all the time. And, and Mr. Monell is really, really fun to to talk to about this because he's got decades of experience writing about this stuff. And so anytime you can get him on the show and get him to talking about this stuff, for instance, most recently had him on the Nashi cast. And uh, it's when I was having people on to talk about different uh, Donetsky films. And he picked and I, I, I shuddered when he did this. He picked Fury of the Wolfman. And uh, the thing is, he really brought something to that discussion because he he came at it at a, at, a, at a right angle. And we can talk all day long about the completely bizarre nature of that movie and how so much of it just does not work. But through him, we're able to kind of watch it get pulled apart and put back together again and see where the composite parts of that movie kind of came from an uh, from another failed script before that. And he's just he's a font of knowledge. Uh, Mr. Monell, Robert Monell, great to have around anytime he can. Well, next time you talk to him, tell him I said hi. I don't know if he remembers me or not, but I did remember recording with him. And yeah, like I said, this is what kind of prompted me to reach out to you to finally get you back on to talk about one of these films because it's been way too long. The last time I had you on to talk about any of these films, let's see, I just had it up here a second ago. <laughs> Wild Wild Planet, September of 2016. <laughs> Ooh, wow. So almost yeah, four years ago, about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's been a long time since we've talked about any of these movies. And I considered going back and re-watching Wild Wild Planet to just get myself ready for this one. But then I remembered, oh, yeah. You, you don't have to see the first and enjoy the second. They're not really connected in that. You know, it's not like an ongoing storyline. It's just another long science fiction episode, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, it's something that Italian television was doing at the time, and I think continued to do for a very long time, which is feature-length long stories produced for television, uh, you know, kind of like TV movies, but with a slight bit more ambition and a definite push toward genre at time. It's kind of weird to know that back in the 60s, these movies were made with the with an eye toward them being played on television. One of the things that I really like about them is the look of these films. It's just, the world is just fascinating to me. The colors, the way everything's constructed. And it's almost like an alternate reality version of what was happening over here in the States on television. Because what else came out in 66? It was a big sci-fi thing. Star Trek. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Star Trek started in 66, right? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. You, you have these two different looks at two different cultural views as what the future is going to look like and the way they use colors are a little bit different and that sort of thing. And I just really appreciate that that contrast. But also they kind of complement each other in some ways because of the way the colors are used, because of the way the set design is set up. The Italian films, the Marguerite films, are a little more violent than anything Star Trek ever did. I mean, they're carrying guns around all the time for crying out loud. They shoot flames. 
Yeah, so a little bit more aggressive, maybe a little more sexy than anything Star Trek was doing at the time. But yeah, it's just kind of a nice little compare contrast moment that I had while I was watching this this morning. Well, I think visually the thing that stands out to me about these Margarita science fiction films is that these are very much movies that were influenced, at least visually, by the look of Hollywood science fiction films from the 50s. In other words, these are kind of the last holdouts of uh, films that held on to the rocket ship look, you know, the, the large phallic thing on fins that shoots up into space and retain, you know, retains that look throughout because by the time you get to star Trek here in the States, we're not using that kind of design. That's a very different look. Uh, The the enterprise is not a rocket, you know, it's not a rocket. It's a spacecraft. And so these are uh, some of the last, not definitely not the last, but some of the last, I guess we do have to call them feature films, that's what they are, that would retain that, that look of rocket ships from the 50s. And uh, for that reason, and for a lot of other reasons, they do feel at times like they're, I don't know, roughly a decade, a decade out of place. You know, they, they seem much more attuned to something along the lines of Destination Moon than they do really kind of the stuff that was... Well, like you said, you know, 1966 saw the beginning of Star Trek on television, and that's mm-hmm. while thematically very similar and very, you know, very much a, a science fiction adventure television show. The look, the feel, the the everything about it, the, these movies feel kind of oddly like a throwback. Now, you know, that's both good and bad depending on how you feel about them. But at the time, you have to wonder. Just what uh, audiences, because these things got strung out and released along, you know, from like 65 to about 68 or 69. And you'd have to wonder what you felt sitting in a movie theater or at a drive-in in 1969. And one of these things popped up under some other title or whatever. And you're looking at rocket ships. and You probably feel like this was a 20-year-old movie in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the, the appeal of these films to me, though, is that retro-futurism look. Yeah. That, you know, like you said, they were kind of pulling from what had been done up until that point. And they did have that kind of older style, but I love retro futurism. I think that whole aesthetic is awesome, which is probably another reason why these films resonate with me. And before anybody sends me any feedback or makes any comments, I realized that lost in space started in the U S in 65, a year before star Trek, but I didn't see as much lost in spaceisms in these films as I did star Trekisms. Very much. So I have to agree with you completely on that. The overall story is interesting in that it's a lower budget film that could have easily just said, okay, here's the story. It takes place on one confined space, ship in a bottle type story, right? Right. But it, it takes place over the course or, or over the distance, I suppose. Uh, geographically, it takes place in several different space stations. And I know they probably just use the same set and redress it a little bit, a little, little differently, and that's, that's it. But it, it feels more epic because of that. There's this threat coming, and it's taken out not just one or two people or a spaceship. It's taken out stations. Yeah, and that's one of the neat things about this is there's a fair amount of ambition in what they're trying to accomplish, you know, with their rather limited budget in this film and, and in Wild Wild Planet as well. Any any director knows damn good well that if they don't present you with something different to look at, not that you're a child and you won't stick with it, but that that is a way to make sure that you remain engaged past just absorbing dialogue. And so, yeah, changing the locations, there are there are so many locations in this thing. And of course, all of it's artificial. There's never a point where, unlike Wild Wild Planet, which does have a few scenes that were shot on, on actual locations out of doors, I think 
this entire movie is shot on sets, whether we're on a different planet or on a different space station or wherever we might, or on a spacecraft, wherever we are, it's all shot on sets. The way that they work their tails off to get this movie to look as interesting as they can make it on the budget they have with all these different places that they go. It's pretty inventive and it's, it's not the kind of thing they can't get away with. They do it a few times, but they can't get away with uh, yeah, you're right. They redress a bunch of sets, but they can't do that simple thing, which is, Ooh, we'll just uh, put a different color light on this scene and it'll, it'll be like a different room. And it's like, no, they really can't do that because they're in space. And if they don't find a way to justify it, I mean, they find a very smart way to justify it. I love the fact that the thing that heralds the approach of these rather gaseous or, or light substanced aliens is a green light. But because they've chosen that for the aliens, they can't play around with like color gels or changing the lighting scheme to get you to take notice of something else or to make some place look like some other place. They've got to stick to the standard color palette they've laid out and let the green be the representation of the alien presence. Exactly. Yeah. So they kind of, I don't want to say wrote themselves into a corner there, but because of what the story dictated, they were forced to. Yeah come up with a different way to make everything look different and yeah it all does look different up to and including the uh really odd happy new year space ballet thing <laughs> okay let's talk about the let's talk about a few of the things that don't work in this movie i didn't see any wires okay so at least it's got that going for it right 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 but at the same time <laughs> you and i both know Within one second of looking at what we're looking at, that okay, so these guys are just strung up on wires and they're swinging them, swinging them back and forth. You're, you're willing to let to let it slide, but at the same time, there's that party that goes, "Why did they try this? They shouldn't let that go. Just don't, don't, don't bother. You can't make it look good, so just let it go." But <laughs> I can't wait to see the display they're going to put on for New Year's. Well, I will. I will say that I did love the guys in spacesuits in space spelling out "Happy New Year." I thought that was funny. Uh, oh man. Um... Yeah, so it's clear that when they're out in space, yeah, they're swinging back and forth on a set. There's a, a black backdrop with stars punched into it. Every once in a while, they do swing a little too far to the left, and they go beyond the reach of where they were punching stars into the background. So you see this nice bare area of just black, like the stars abruptly stop, just just for a moment or two. Yeah, I got to look. I got to go back and look at that. But. You know, like I said, I didn't see any wires. I knew they were on wires. I could tell, but <laughs> I didn't see any wires. So good for them. Well, I mean, that's Margarita. He knew special effects, you know. So, yeah, it's New Year's Eve. They're celebrating New Year's in space, which if I had known that, I might have timed this episode a little bit differently to come out around January 1st or so. Oh, but yeah. Whatever. So, somebody's listening to this on New Year's. So Happy New Year's to whoever's listening to this <laughs> I mean, in the future. Yeah, happy New Year. <laughs> we should get a screen grab for, for this coming New Year. We should get a screen grab of, of them spelling out Happy New Year with, with little, bitty, oh. little, little bitty spaceman and, and, and use that for an image. I want that font, you know, <laughs> <laughs> spaceman font. That's right. So, yeah. So listeners, basically what's happened here, you know what? I'm going to try to find the font that looks like that and do like the, the episode art in that because it's, it's just silly, but you know, it's got a little bit of charm to it too. And I, I'm not faulting the movie for it. It just, it's a little silly, a little silly. Well, that's the thing is that very early on, if you're if you're watching this movie and you can't get into the spirit of it, if you're not willing to meet this movie halfway, you're you know, you probably should just turn it off and move away from it anyway. So despite the 
quote unquote spectacle. There's your air quotes spectacle of <laughs> of the New Year celebration happening outside. Really, the drama is happening inside, and we have science fiction adventure stuff happening. We're losing contact with one of the stations, but we also have interpersonal stuff happening between the commander and his girlfriend who will act like a perfect robot in front of all of the people. So nobody has to know. It's like, it's really this cool. I mean, I don't want to say soap opera like, but there's a lot of inner character stuff happening here. Uh, and not just between the couple there, there's some, friction a little bit between commander mike when he starts telling people okay you got to go well, i'm going to say here no you're not you're going to go you know a lot of kind of tension that really holds this movie together for me well yeah and i have to say those are the adult bits those are the pieces that are in the film yeah. that are put that are put there now if you want to be cynical let's say you were a, an eight-year-old kid watching this who's watching this for you know rocket ships and ray guns you know listening to the all, all these characters getting all worked up about uh, you know, jealousies and petty concerns of this type. You just want them to shut up and get to the ray guns again. It's filler. <laughs> when you're a kid, it's filler, man. Shut up and get on with the stuff. Yeah. But watching it as an adult, it's, it's. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not uh, It's not written at a level where anybody's going to get uh, any kind of award for dialogue. But at the same time, it does, add, it does do more than just pad out the running time. Remember, it's love that pads the film. So uh, <laughs> the... <laughs> it's always love that passed the film, but the uh, interpersonal stuff, the, this movie uh, better than some of the others in the series really does a pretty good job of establishing character. And I'm not just talking about the little back and forth between Lisa Gastoni and uh, Tony Russell, but also you get a good sense in this movie of the character uh, played by the very young Franco Nero. He actually has a lot of screen time and a lot of things to say and do. So he, you get a sense of what he's like. And there are several other characters that you get a good sense of as well. It's really neat. The, the movie starts off on Earth, but of course very much on a set. And we see what turns out to be one of the first human beings who gets taken over slash possessed by these alien creatures. And uh, that actor, is Michael, let's see, I'm going to mispronounce his name. So I'm completely on brand with this. But uh, it's uh, Michel Limon. He's a French actor who's in a whole lot of stuff. The weird thing about this is he plays uh, the character of uh, Jacques Dubois. Of course, the character's French, so we got to make him French, right? Even though he's dubbed in English with the flat English accent or American accent, I should say, so it doesn't really matter. But the, That's uh, true, yeah. He's got a huge role in this movie, and his name isn't even in the credits of the film. Oh, wow. You're right. He's not listed, man. And, and and what's wild is this guy was in so many movies. He was in uh, Cemetery Without Crosses. He was in a couple of uh, a fun little Jess Franco oh, films. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was in uh, uh, Cemetery Without Crosses. Is such a fascinating spaghetti western. It's yeah. So, wow. He's in a couple of uh, Jess Franco films, the the mm-hmm. uh, Two Undercover Angels movies, uh, one of which is called Kiss Me Monster. Uh, he was in Three Giants of the Roman Empire in 1971. He was in Mar- one of Mario Bava's two westerns, The Road to Fort Alamo. Uh, he was in a neat little movie that I just recently learned of, and I, I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy to see, called Planets Around Us from 1962. Uh, he's the lead. Uh, che- okay, check out this description of this film. Planets Around Us, 1962. An alien race sends cyborgs made to look like the son of a famous scientist whom they killed when he landed on their planet to earth to help pave the way for an invasion. So, wow. Yeah. 
And I'm looking at the movie poster for it, too. And I've said this before. European Euro horror and, and genre movie poster art is just amazing from this era. And the Italians really did it right. This movie poster looks great. Isn't it incredible? <laughs> I just find it incredible that this actor who had a pretty substantial career, it's so bizarre that he's not even listed. And he has a lot to do in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of it kind of hangs on him. I was looking over his filmography a moment ago, and one title stuck out to me. Seven Women for Satan. Okay, I don't know what that movie's about, but that title has my attention. Wait a minute, I think I know that film. What uh, What year was that? And he's the lead, uh, 70, 76, but I think he was the lead in that as well. Mondo Macabre released it on DVD years ago. I know that film well. He wrote and directed it. This appears to be like a Most Dangerous Game style movie story. Kind of, yeah, kind of, sort of. Well, sign me up. I'm going to go track that one down after this. It's an interesting little movie. Yeah. You will enjoy watching it. Whether whether you'll think it's good or not is a different matter entirely. But, you know, it's worth. It's definitely worth your time. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So, so much of this story kind of hinges on what he is doing in here. That's, I didn't realize he wasn't in the credits. That's a shame. Does that make any sense? Well, who knows what or why you know that happened. But yeah, so Captain Dubois, he, he's the first one that's overtaken by these aliens that we never actually see, uh, like a physical form. They're, they're just gas and lights. So way to save money on the special effects budget right there. Perfect. Smart move. <laughs> Very smart move. We were talking earlier about how this movie uh, visually is a bit of a throwback to the 1950s uh, in its look. But at the same time, story-wise, it's very much, it's almost kind of a weird look ahead. Or maybe it's just at the right time period. I'm not sure because, yeah, okay, you, you have these disembodied uh, alien creatures that take over the bodies of others. In fact, that turns out to be, spoiler alert, people, sorry, that turns out to be what their whole purpose is, is to find new bodies for themselves. That is a level of creepiness that this movie plays up very effectively, especially in the second half when, you know, we find out exactly what's going on and what they're up to, where you see that this really dark, nasty aspect to this, where they even dispose of people who, whose bodies reject this joining together of the alien presence with the physical body. That, that to me felt really dark and it felt like something that they were playing with something a little less. Well, I think they may have been playing with something that was darker than they may have intended. Because if you stop to think about that idea, that's truly horrifying. In other words, it's not just a, a scary premise for a science fiction movie. It's flat out a horror movie. I respond well to that, too. I love mixing some horror in with my sci-fi. You know, I, I like that extra edge. And, I mean, this also goes back to my past as a podcaster. They're basically zombified at this point. They're totally overridden and taken over by uh, this alien invasion or infestation. Yeah. It's pretty cleverly done. Yes, it is. And it's, there's a sense that they're kind of a kind of a hive mind. Well, I mean, it's that phrase that they keep they keep uh, banding about uh, for the good of the whole. The individual is something that they're completely unconcerned with. So even though there are all these individual alien creatures, all these thousands upon thousands of lights uh, that are individual alien creatures, they're very much a hive mind. And that also put me in in mind of mm -hmm. the uh, the idea of like invasion of the body snatchers where everybody is, you know, happily alive, but without any larger ambition, without any drive to be anything other than just alive. 
And uh, the character played by uh, the French actor who is uncredited uh, is telling them, is, is kind of giving them all this information at a certain point, which he's very, he's being very emphatic. He's, he's, he's imparting this information about all of these human foilables being washed away, but he's doing it in a way that's showing a lot of emotion is like, are you sure you're right about that? In other words, that's, a, that's something that maybe the movie didn't get the chance to play with, which is maybe the idea that being inside humans was going to kind of have a, a kind of tainting effect to the supposedly pure diaphanoid creatures that these things are. It's a very matter of fact, this is what we're doing. We're going to be your friends. This is what we're doing. We're going to be your kind of approach that these aliens take. And it's, it's an interesting take on the, like you said, body snatcher trope, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, really liked it. Man, there's a lot to like. The more we talk about this movie, the more I want to go back and rewatch it again, like right away. Cause I just really tug it, man. It's a pretty good little, it's a pretty good little film. And it's, and the thing is there, as I mentioned earlier, when we first started talking, these movies, uh, most of them anyway, somewhere in the narrative where it feels as if they've lost the thread. And this movie has it as well, because Tony Russell's character, the commander of Gamble one, they've already seen the other space stations just blink out of existence. And they, know that they're being attacked, but nobody has any real idea at this, this point. This is early in the movie, exactly what the hell is going on. So he is trying to figure out, he's taken what little information they have, including the fact that the station had started getting these weird radiation readings uh, in space and out, you know, out in the area around the space stations of negative radiation. He took that little piece of information and has uh, his engineers set up some places within Gamma 1, evac- evacuates Gamma 1, holds back his security team who are volunteering to help. Has an idea that maybe even though these things seem to be able to seep in through the outer hull of the space stations, he might have a way to protect himself and these other guys from them coming after them. And he's successful. But that section of the movie, when that's going on, it almost takes a second viewing to completely understand exactly a, what he's doing and what he's setting up, and B, just what is happening even when it's going on. So in this movie, there's this stretch of this stretch of a few minutes there when that is going on, where the movie seems to kind of lose the thread of communicating what they're doing to us. But that's luckily <laughs> that's the only point in, in this film where that happens. And, and you're right. I'm not disagreeing with you. I feel like there's a good payoff to that, though, because isn't it right after that when Commander Mike uh, meets up with his father? And it's, and, and we get a little bit of, again, there's some interrelational yes. stuff happening here. You know, he works. His father is above him in command. Uh, he's a general. Uh, commander Mike, you know, well, he's a commander. And when they re- when they unite, when they come together, Mike is kind of bragging just a little bit about what he did about taking initiative to do all this stuff. But the general, his dad's like, well, that's great. And you'll get accommodation. And I don't think I'll discipline you this time. It's like, well, well I, it's like, well, you disobeyed a direct order. Uh, you disobeyed a command, but you know, okay. <laughs> and it, yeah. I like that kind of playful back and forth as well. And, and like I said, you get, that's the payoff for that kind of meandering moment where you kind of lose what's happening. There's a nice payoff for it. So it's worth sticking around through. Oh, I agree. And, and it's another one of those great little character moments in the film where you see this guy who has reason to swagger a little bit here and is kind of proud of what he's done and then kind of gets slapped down by his father and commanding officer because you went against a direct order. Yeah, I like it. I like it. It's good stuff. And it's another one of those moments in the movie where uh, I don't even think the eight year old would have been against that scene because it's well played. <laughs> <laughs> 
I swear to you, there. I, I often when I when I think about these movies, I think about um, them being. They're so colorful. They're so bright and colorful. When they become exciting, you know, you've got the ray guns firing flames, and you've got spaceships, and you've got all the things that little boys would just eat up with a freaking spoon, man. And so I'm always thinking about the little eight-year-old watching this movie and waiting for the good stuff. There are some character interactions in this, in this movie that I think would appeal to the eight-year-old too. And I think the swaggering guy who's the hero getting taken down a peg by his father is is a pretty good, a pretty good example of that. I, I think we've pretty much set up what happened in the story. You know, there's an alien invasion and Commander Mike and his people have to stop it. How the bodies are left after they've encountered the aliens i thought was a neat take because again we talked about the green being important and uh i'm a little colorblind but were the people the the corpses left green as well a little green there were tinges of green the, okay okay so i did catch that right okay good <laughs> well not 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 a lot and that that is a question i will i will admit my my girlfriend when we were watching it the other night there's a character who says you know who makes the comment that you know, all these people who are frozen in place and seemingly in suspended animation have a green tint to them. And she goes, they do. And then the very next one they show does have a green tint as if there's some kind of, you know, light green makeup on them. And then a few of the others do, but not all of them have that look. So yeah, you, you're right to wonder about that. Uh, I also really enjoyed how they first determine whether or not somebody still has a heartbeat by pressing their head firmly against the, uh, the woman's bosom. To listen for yes. it, like come oh, on. That's, I mean, that's isn't that isn't that how that's done? Wait, I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't understand. Do you say? I mean, I've never taken CPRR classes, but you know, back when I was a Boy Scout, I don't remember that being taught. So, well, I'll just say that the thought that went through my head, and I may have even said it out loud the other night, which is, why don't you put your finger against the jugular, see if you feel any, any see if you feel a pulse. Come on, man, take a pulse, man, take a pulse, because you're being creepy. Come on. <laughs> Whether she is dead or she wakes up, you're being creepy. <laughs> well, and they even play that up again for laughs, too, because there are, there's one scene where one of the guys walks into, I guess you could call it the woman's locker room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where these two women are in various states of undress, looking like they're about to hop in the shower or something. I don't know. But he walks in and his first thought, oh, excuse me. And he turns around and looks again. And it's like, oh. But then he gets this idea, hey, buddy, come here and look at this. And then that's it. You know, yeah, luckily they they cut away from that. So we don't have to we don't have to get a little too uncomfortable, especially if we're once again, an eight year old. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I love the way the guns are used. I love those flame guns, those flame lasers or whatever they are. Uh, I, I do question how we're supposed to think these things, these lasers are attacking gas, but. You know what? Whatever. Well, they're it not works. doing. That's just that's one of the neat things is that they really aren't doing a very good job. And it's not until the aliens are actually in human host bodies that things start to take a, an effective turn with that kind of stuff. And I have to say that mm-hmm. I kind of remembered, and I I was I was wrong rewatching this the other night. One of my memories of the movie is that the physical fights between characters uh, were not very impressive. And yet, and yet watching it the other night, I have to say, I misremembered that because I was much more happy with the, the knockdown drag out level of fist fights as they attempt to escape the uh, Martian mining colony. Uh, I was really kind mm-hmm. of impressed with the, the choreography because my memory of it was that it's something you had to overlook in the movie. And it's actually pretty good. When it comes time to uh, get down to the fists and get, get down to the bare knuckles, you know, they, it, 
it does it well. It brings it to the table. And there you go. That's what the little kids are looking for, right? Let's have a fight with aliens, you know? So <laughs> I'm, I'm in, you know, little Derek's on board. <laughs> well, yeah, but what's neat is, like I say, they ha- you have to get through, even if you're that little eight-year-old or if, yeah. even if you're an adult, uh, you have to get through the sequence where the, the astronauts are forced to watch the uh, hosting ceremony, which is a little mm-hmm. unnerving as we watch uh, these alien you know, creatures joining up with new hosts and we see a couple of people reject it. And we've already seen in the uh, big waste bin, the discarded bodies of people who didn't work out with the uh, hosting process. Like I say, there's a few dark moments in the movie that they don't hit too hard, but they do hit them hard enough to turn this into a little bit of a horror movie. That speaks to the horror fan in me, you know, the monster movie fan in me. I, I love having that dark edge to a lot of these these kinds of stories, whether it's it movie, it, the mon- whatever. I, I like having the monsters in space. Like, so oh, you at. mean it, 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 the terror from beyond space? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So I like having that that juxtaposition of you know dark, dark. Oh my gosh, this is actually really intense horror. But we're in space, and aren't the colors pretty? You know, I like having <laughs> that back and forth. Um, you know, and and we're talking about it at the end of the movie with with trying to get out of the Martian colony and all that. I was a little worried that the movie, that Commander Mike was going to lose himself a little bit in his emotions. Everybody's trying to leave, but we can't leave without Connie. We've got to go back and get Connie, Lisa Gastoni's character. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, there are other people that could be liberated here too, right? <laughs> it's not just about your girlfriend going back and getting her. There are other people we can save. Now they do end up saving a few other people along the way. It doesn't become you know, the Commander Mike's, I'm going to save my girlfriend and to hell with everything else. You know, they, they do save other people along the way. But I was a little worried when that bit of dialogue came up. I'm like, oh, come on, Mike. I was about to say, yeah, the, the commander needed to be willing to sacrifice his his love if he was going to if he was going to be able to save some of his crew. That, that would have been the Kirk move, the, the ability to to step away from the, the hot chick of the week and, and save your crew. <laughs> but, you know, it, it does resolve in a more... Um, in a better way. Well, we haven't mentioned one of my favorite things about this movie, which is okay. uh, all of the, the the miniature sets and stuff like this. I mean, it's, it's, oh, it's man. they're very much exactly what you're expecting from a 50s or 60s science fiction movie. In other words, the eyes become much more sophisticated than this over over the decades. And, you know, the, this is not something that would have, well, even from Margarita's <laughs> statement earlier. Is not something that he thought would really have been allowed to fly on a screen in 1966, for goodness sake. So that's one way of looking at it. But I really enjoy these kinds of obvious miniature sets. You know, the, the buildings and the spacecraft and the, the landing areas and things like that. I just really love that kind of thing. And I think that they do a really good job, especially there at the end, when they do that uh, <clears throat> slightly, completely unbelievable run across the Martian surface to get to the spacecraft, uh, <laughs> that that it actually the colors, you know, it, it doesn't match perfectly, but all the colors and the, the the scheme and the design of everything that you're looking at when the people are on that set match the miniatures really well. And, you know, it never makes you believe that you're not looking at miniatures, but you do see the craft and the time that's being taken to make all this stuff look right. The miniatures, I feel like in some cases, are almost Toho level quality. There is some real craftsmanship here, some real artistry on display. And I don't know who was responsible for that. I don't know who did the production design or the the miniature sets or whatever, but they looked great. And I was going to say, 
and you just said it for me, the, the blending of the live action, uh, the full live action, I guess, you know, the, the actors and actresses on their sets, the way they were kind of blended together. For the most part, it felt like it was one cohesive space. And there's just something about the production design of this one. And I, I think I might have even said it during the Wild Wild Planet episode. Even the cars they're driving. <laughs> there's just yes. something cool about that, man. There's an aesthetic there that I don't think we saw much of here in the States this time when it came to genre cinema or even sense. There's just this really unique aesthetic. You see more car stuff in Wild Wild Planet. You only see one uh, in this film at the very beginning when Captain Dubois is pulling up to take over his duty shift or whatever. But the design, the aesthetic, do you know who was responsible for all that? No, there was a production designer listed in the credits. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm not sure who it was. I do know that for the special effects, Margariti and his team, you know, the reason he got jobs like this in the first place was that he knew how to handle this stuff. And it's always been my understanding that for the most part, the special effects, the miniatures and things like that were handled by Margariti directly and his team of people okay. that uh, he'd been doing this kind of stuff with for years. And then he continued to do this kind of stuff with for years. Margariti was well known, especially for his miniatures. Uh, there are uh, all the way up through his stuff in the 80s. There are just all kinds of incredible miniature sets and miniature at that point, cars and different things of that nature. And they're sophisticated. He got better and better with that as he, as you as he went along because you get better and better at the lighting, you get better at hiding certain things. So I'm pretty sure that that's a lot of hands-on margariti stuff there. And by this time, I think by this time, I think he had one of his, I think he had his eldest son coming along and, and being an assistant director and working on the special effects as well. I know that was happening by the 80s when they did things like uh, the television miniseries Treasure Island in Space. A lot of the special effects were done by Margariti and his son and their team. Treasure Island in Space? I've never heard of that. Oh, dude, Ernest Borgnine. Really? Oh, man, that sounds like something I need to see. Oh, you do need to see it. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, right now, uh, over on the on Blogariti, uh, you know, uh, Adrian Smith's Antonio Margariti blog, he's doing a, a long series of posts on it as he goes along. You can learn more about it there because he's certainly digging into whatever information he can find about it. But yeah, uh, you can find some behind-the-scenes photographs from a couple of these movies, from some of the Gamma 1 stuff, although they were made at such a speed, I don't know how many behind-the-scenes photographs were bothered to be taken. But you can see some uh, footage of them working on the special effects of uh, Treasure Island in space, even. Wow. Well, that's something to add to the list. Uh, that sounds awesome. Ever-growing. Uh, Adrian Smith, you mentioned him a couple times. I keep meaning to say, I've never had him here on this show, but I have communicated with him off and on over the years. He does contribute to the B-Movie cast as well. So if you listen to the B-Movie cast, you might have heard him uh, pop up over there. And then he's done stuff with Rod, too. So Adrian's a good guy. He's a, definitely a friend of the show. Someday I'll have him on here. Someday. You really ought to. Uh, the time difference between where you are and where he is would be about eight hours. So Yeah, that's that's where things start to get a little dicey. But you know what? What am I doing otherwise? We're all at home here in the States, right? And I don't know where he's at, but he may be staying home all day, too. So we'll figure something out. Oh, he is. Yeah. Yeah, I think the last time I talked to him, he was doing a, uh, a thesis or a dissertation on Eurospy films. Yeah, he's been working on something about that, which is very exciting. He's Adrian's a great guy. He's always He's always got something on the boil. He's fun. Right on. So is there anything else about the movie that you want to make sure people know about or get excited about? Are there any moments that stood out for you that we haven't already discussed? Not any particular moments. I think that one of the joys of this is this is this isn't really a movie that you can spoil. If you're aware of this kind of genre of filmmaking, if you where the period it was made, you're kind of going in knowing what to expect. And the joys of this one is that like the other three in this series, they're similar but different. 
This one has more of a horror element than the others to a degree. All of them have, you know, scary parts, right? There's some scary stuff here and there, you know, sure, sure. You know, giant big four-armed creatures and things like that. And there are scary sequences and exciting sequences. But this one, the more you think about what's going on here, these diaphanoid aliens who are looking for new hosts because the world that they were inhabiting and the Andromeda system is no longer around. This is some creepy stuff. And that's one of the, one of the fun things about this one is that this one leans more into the horror genre than some of the others. You would think the movie snow devils would lean more into it because you've got these aliens who look like abominable snowmen, but honestly it, it doesn't. This is the one that if you want to watch one of these, look at and, and Derek, you're right, man, you can watch these in any order you want to. And it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So if, you have a tendency to enjoy more of the horror stuff. I would say go with this one. This one's a lot of fun because it's colorful and beautiful to look at. And uh, it's got uh, some some fun character interactions, things that are going to keep your mind occupied even when rocket ships and ray guns aren't on screen. But at the same time, it's got that dark storyline. It tells you right up front. Like I say, the first scene is you you have that initial character of Dubois getting possessed. So you already, as an audience, are aware of what kind of story we're in the middle of here. But then it just gets darker and darker as it goes along. I think it's great. I think it has a good payoff. One could argue that uh, the uh, general uh, blow up the alien solution at the end of it seems a little, well, facile. <laughs> but, you know, we got to find a way. We've only got 90 minutes here, people. We got we to gotta wrap this thing up. <laughs> Uh, the only other thing that I would add, and you know it's coming, I love the music in these movies, man, so much. I love the score. Uh, yes. The CD is currently out of print, but you can still find it. It's just called Science Fiction, and music from all four films is on this CD. Uh, yep. And Angelo Francesco, oh boy, the last name, Lavagnino? Lavagnino? Oh, yeah. I believe it's Lavagnino. Yeah. So he did all four films. So that makes them feel a little bit more cohesive as well. It's a great album. It's got some good music on there. I know him mostly from his spaghetti Western work, but this really is good. It's really good. I always had a tendency before I realized that he did the music for these movies, I always associated him with Peplum's primarily. These big, you know, those big muscular themes, you know, this almost a a martial kind of marching kind of thing. But clearly he, he, he could go from something like Goliath and the Vampires to this without missing a beat. And that was a really bad accidental joke. I apologize. (laughs) He also did one of my favorite Eurospy films. He did Mission Bloody Mary. Uh, which I uh, I love. I mean that now the main theme in that is Morricone, but the rest of the music is his. And I just I adore Ken Clark as a Euro spy hero, and th- these movies are great. Well, he also did the score for uh, one of uh, Lucio Fulci's best films from 1969, the film Beatrice Chinse. Okay, it's an historical drama. Highly recommended. I think it's a we're, we're supposedly getting a Blu-ray release of it sometime this year, sometime oh. later this year. Uh, it's a really fascinating movie. Tomas Melian is the name that you would know uh, mm-hmm. s- straight from uh, other things. George Wilson and a few other people you know probably from other film roles. But it's just a really good kind of telling of the uh, the Chensei family and the their basically it's uh, about 1600 in Italy and the entire family is kind of waiting on uh, the fate. Remember, this is this is the family that uh, produced one of the most depraved popes in history. So I want to keep that in mind. So. <laughs> and finally, before we wrap up, 
the whole reason I was inspired to finally reach out to Rod and make this happen was because of the post that you put out, this kind of simmering campaign right now to try to get these films out on Blu-ray. Now, not all of them are owned by the same studio. It's, it's a kind of a like a hammer film situation where one of them's owned by somebody else. So to get a box yeah. out of all four together, I, it's probably impossible at this point. But the three, and which, which are the three that are in the same package, do you know? Right now, Warner Brothers owns the rights to three of the four films. They have Wild Wild Planet. They have this film, uh, War Between the Planets. No, not War Between the Planets. Good Lord. See, I blew it again. <laughs> War of the Planets. Uh-huh. This, this is War of the Planets. They have Wild Wild Planet, War of the Planets, and they have Snow Devils. Now, through their Warner Archives burn-on-demand uh, DVD arm, they have released those three films. And they look great on DVD, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, I want them on Blu-ray. <laughs> I bet they would look gorgeous on blue. Exactly. Now, here's the thing. Here's the here's the weird little thing. And I think we talked about this when we talked about Wild Wild Planet. There's a f- kind of unofficial fifth Gamma One film that came out a few years later. You might have heard it. It's called The Green Slime. And just like that, the theme song stuck in my head. Thanks. No, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> no, no. Nevertheless, uh, what it is is that uh, Green Slime was a, an Italian-Japanese co-production, and it shares some of the, the some of the sets, and it actually calls one of the stations in the movie Gamma One. And some of the producers who made these movies were involved in uh, co-writing and making the Green Slime. It's not a Margariti film, but it's kind of been thought of as kind of the fifth unofficial Gamma One film, and. Warner Archives has already released the green slime onto Blu-ray. So all we want to do is we're trying to encourage Warner Archives to realize that it would be a good idea to put the rest of them. They they, they don't own all four. That's true. But of the three they have, they could release them on Blu-ray and it would be really nice. They don't do it very often. But uh, I know a couple of people, one named Derek and one named Adrian, who would be perfect due to commentary tracks on these movies to kind of add value yeah i mean there there's people out there that'll do commentary tracks for these things man right. come on right so what i did is I, I i wrote a post on my blog over there on uh, on the bloody pit of rod where i just put the idea out there it's like look it would be a good idea for the gamma one films to get blu-ray releases and not just because they're unique pieces of 60 science fiction from italy but because they're very colorful, there's a lot of visual splash that these movies present on screen. And like I say, they already look great in DVD format. All I want now is the high definition versions of them. I would just like, I think it would be great to do this. And I think that there is an audience out there for these movies to be sold on Blu-ray. Of course, clearly Green Slime has done well for them. So the idea is to write to the Warner Archives people. The easiest way to get to them is through the uh, Warner Archive podcast. You can reach them you know, through their Facebook page. They're on Twitter, at Warner Archive. And they have an Instagram page. And they even have a mailing address where they encourage people to write physical letters to them. Uh, I have done so in the past to ask them questions, and lots of people do. So if you have the curiosity, if you'd like to see these movies released on Blu-ray, join us and... Uh, let your feelings be known to the Warner Archive podcast people. They're online. Uh, you can go over to the posting on my blog page where I have the address. 
I have uh, links to their Facebook page and things like that. So you can just click right on them and let's just let them know that there is an audience out here willing to, uh, in my case, uh, repurchase these movies in high definition. I'll make sure there's links to all this in the show notes. Of course, uh, I would love to add my voice to this and any listeners out there. I hope that we've sold you on the movie if you haven't seen it already. And, Trust me, if you're sold on the movie, you're going to want to see it high def because, man, the the picture, the colors, the lighting, it just it calls for it. It would be amazing to see. And I I would be willing to do a commentary track, Warner Brothers. I'm just saying just just, you know, I'm here. I got my audio equipment and I, I'd be happy to talk about them. Yeah. If I had my yeah. druthers, you and Adrian, uh-huh. you and Adrian would collaborate to do commentary tracks on these movies. I think it'd be great. I, I would love to work with Adrian on something. That'd be great. Now, now we just got to tell him we're trying to get him a job. <laughs> <laughs> so, man. So like I said, links in the show notes to this links in the show notes to pit of rod, uh, the bloody pit, Nashy cast, uh, the, the fan club for Dracula versus Frankenstein. You run oh, uh, everything. Yeah, yeah, I'll make sure course. there's links to all that. Uh, <laughs> and I want to have you, especially that thing that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. You know, I want to have you back on the show to talk about the next film, but I don't want to wait three and a half, four years to do it. But I think the next time that we're going to talk podcasting is probably me being on your show to talk about that last round of William Castle Westerns. Yeah, we have two more William Castle Westerns from the 50s to talk about. Uh, I'm looking yep. forward to it. I've still not watched the movies because I, I, you know, I, so I have, a, have an anticipatory idea of how I should view those before we record. But uh, yeah, that's probably where you and I will be talking next. Sounds good. This has been awesome, Rod. Thanks for doing this kind of spur of the moment, last minute, kind of put this together. This is awesome. I hope the listeners enjoyed it because I know I did. Thank you, man. I was, I'm always glad to be here. Young girls for old fools. And they take us in Dracula versus Frankenstein. Yesterday they were cold and dead. Today they're hot and bothered. No female is safe from the hideous plans as the prettiest captives are lured into the arms of artificially created men. There's no way out when dead beings must have live women. See Dracula versus Frankenstein rated PG. The Fury of the Wolfman. A strange and mysterious story packed with intrigue and horror. What was the terrible secret that haunted Walter Mendeninsky and that threw him into a world of violence and terror? This is the story of a haunted man, a life bewildered by mystery and horror. And nothing could keep Dr. Elman away from using even grave tombs for her horrible experiments. Don't worry. His mind is dominated. Destiny pushed Professor Daninsky into the lives of monstrous freaks. The mysterious world of the beautiful Dr. Ilona Elman. (laughs) 
wild battle in a world full of gruesome violence and horror. A world of the lowest passions. This is the story of a man who changed into a wild beast. There's something strange. What are you going to do now? I want you to listen carefully to this, Danitsky. This is the drama of a normal human being. A professor of psychology who got involved into mystery and crime, who was wanted by the police, who could not help changing into a furious animal. Only love could make an end to his torture. Don't miss The Fury of the Wolfman. Action, violence, horror, filmed with more realism than you can imagine. The Fury of the Wolfman, a Max Burr Film production. Starring Paul Nasky, Para Cristal. Veronica Lujan, and Michael Rivers. Horror, if there ever was. Good evening, Monster Kids. This is the Count. I'm here with some friends to tell you about our favorite board and card game podcast. It's Go Forth and Game. Tom and Ryan talk about all things gaming with special emphasis on interviews with game designers and publishers. What do you think about this, my tall, gaunt friend? Go Forth Game, good. And what about you, my undead comrade? I think Go Forth and Game is the most entertaining podcast about board and card games that I've come across in 4,522 years. So, if you enjoy listening to two monster kids discuss topics like abstract games, the best family games, game schooling, various game mechanics, and of course, monster-themed games, then you should give Go Forth and Game a try. That's GoForthAndGame.com, available on iTunes and Spotify. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of the show. I really appreciate having you guys and gals along for the ride every week talking about monster movies. I do that with my friends anyway. That I get to record those conversations and share them with even more of my friends. Well, that's even better. If you have any friends out there who aren't listening to podcasts and want to know more about Monster Kid Radio, you know where you can send them. 
It's monsterkidradio.net. Heck, you can go there too, because that's where we have everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. Our contact information is over there. Again, it's monsterkidradio at gmail.com or 503-479-5657 if you want to call and leave us a voicemail. It's 503-4795-MKR. Of course, there are links in the show notes to everything that we talk about here on the show, as well as Amazon links to take you to Amazon to buy any of the products that we've mentioned here on the show, the movies that we talked about, the Gamma One films, I'm going to make sure there's links to all those, as well as those two books that Rod mentioned. And I'll make sure there's a link to, and this isn't Amazon, but I'll make sure there's a link to the Facebook page for That's Terry Ific. That is the Facebook page for Cryptkeeper and Head Seamstress Terry Mount. That's Terry Riffick is a provider of super cool monster and geek themed shirts, aprons, Ties, handkerchiefs, and now masks. Now, to be clear, these are not N95 quality masks. They're not guaranteed to stop the coronavirus or COVID-19. However, any protection is better than no protection, right? Plus, they're just darn cool. I actually have a couple of them here. I know a few other members of the Monster Kid Radio audience have them as well head over to that's terry ific on facebook i'll make sure there's a link in the show notes of course as well and you can get a hold of her and order a mask or two they're 15 dollars a piece they fit really really well i prefer the ties but you can also do elastic with them as well and she's got some interfacing in between the fabric that makes up the masks and every time i go out to the grocery store i make sure i wear mine Again, link in the show notes. What's coming up next week on the show? There are a couple of possibilities. I haven't really settled on it. I know, I know. I made a joke about how Derek needs to be a little bit more organized and plan ahead when I was talking with Steve Turek earlier. But yeah, I I really don't know what we're doing next week. I may have a recording scheduled for this Friday. If I can't make that happen and get that done in time, then maybe the long-awaited Gargoyles episode with Steve Turek will make the cut. We'll see. Stay tuned. I'll keep you posted. I know I mentioned earlier something about small businesses. Here's the deal, gang. If you are a small business owner, if you are an owner of a business that's taking a hit because of what's going on with COVID-19, with all the stay-at-home orders and the quarantines, that sort of thing, and you'd like a little bit of a rub here on Monster Kid Radio, I'm happy to give it. I've mentioned Dr. Tongue's I Had That Shop and the Joy Cinema. I'll make sure there are links in the show notes, of course, to where you can buy gift cards for the Joy Cinema or for Dr. Tongue's. I'll also make sure there's a link to Dr. Tongue's Etsy shop. I've mentioned Jim Moore's work in the past and, of course, Terry, and that's Terry Riffick. The thing is, is that right now, with the convention season really taking a hit, so many of us that rely on convention income And I know it's scary. Uh, My friends over at Deeply Dapper, for example, I mean, they rely on their convention sales of everything from books, games, soap, beard oils, candles, all that. And again, link in the show notes to Deeply Dapper. I mean, that's all they do. And now they can't. So if you are involved in any kind of business like that, I want to give you a little bit of a spotlight here. So please feel free to reach out to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. I don't know if I can direct any customers your way, but I'm happy to try. Also, if you are interested and have the capability to do so and you want to cut a 30 or 60 second audio promo, I'd be happy to put that in the mix or a video spot because I would include you in the social distance Saturday screenings that we're doing. This weekend is House of Social Distance Saturday, where we're going to show another big old chunk of movies. As always, the pre-show starts around 11 a.m. Pacific. The movies with live chat starts around noon Pacific. 
and it will go for at least nine hours. And I'm really looking forward to this weekend because we've got some other really cool stuff lined up. You can watch it over at Twitch. Just go to twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. Link in the show notes as always. And no, I don't know how you can watch Twitch on Roku. I know that Roku does have a Twitch app, but it doesn't really work that well, and the unofficial Twitch app is no longer supported, so I I can't help you there, unfortunately, but you can watch it on your computer, your laptop, your tablet, your phone. I watch it on the Xbox in the living room. There are plenty of ways for you to watch it. Please feel free to join us and join us in the conversation. And just to kind of give you a little sneak peek, a spoiler, maybe a tease, I can tell you there's not going to be just one, but two Bela Lugosi films this week. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a good time. Hopefully I'll see you there. If not, I'll see you back here next week for the next episode of Monster Kid Radio. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Outer Space. That is copyright 2020. Beware of Blast. It is from their new EP, Outer space which you can find at bewareofblast.bandcamp.com go check them out let them know that monster kid radio sent you and uh, hey you know what if you buy their album in may as well as any other musician on bandcamp bandcamp's going to give 100 of the proceeds to the artists as opposed to taking their cut just because of what's going on with covid19 so you know what go check out beware of blast now and then in a couple weeks pick up their album as well as any other albums out there that you might like my name is Derek m cook i'll talk to everybody next week Here's Outer Space. Ciao.